Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is one that I'm very pleased to have done. I had a conversation with Neil Gaiman in Soho and we spoke about everything from feeling an obligation to do work well, to living a Groundhog Day, to uh, free speech and the importance of defending icky speech. And uh, there's a little bonus Patreon thing if you are a Patreon subscriber that I will also be putting up. Uh, It was a really uh, fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, It was just a a delightful afternoon. It reminds me of uh, when my brother came home from his first day of school. Uh, I was at that time at the eye hospital because he'd accidentally poked me in the eye with a cricket stump. It's a long story, just before our fifth birthday. It was an accidental thing, but I had to go into the eye hospital and have my retina reattached. And (laughs) all of that is side note to my brother went to school and he came back and my parents asked him, how was your first day at school? And he said, I met some children and turned them into friends. And I I felt like that was something that happened today. I met somebody uh, who was uh, sort of an imaginary figure in my head and uh, turned him into a friend, at least. I hope so. Uh, That said, I should thank my Patreon subscribers because you make this possible um, and you make everything that I do better by virtue of, of I feel and am supported in the kind of odd and uh, non-mainstream work that I, I do. It, it makes a massive difference and uh, I am very grateful. Uh, if you want to support the podcast in other ways, please tell your friends, please tweet my guests and tell them that you enjoyed uh, them on my podcast. That makes a difference to whether they come back and whether they recommend their friends to come on the podcast, uh, go and see their shows, support their work, support my work. If you are in London, I am filming Ethos on the 17th of February at the Museum of Comedy. I will put tickets up on my Twitter, I will put tickets up on my website, and I assume they'll be also up on the Museum of Comedy website. So uh, do come to that. I um, have been uh, I've been not doing Ethos since the festival, but I will do it again for, uh, for filming, and I'm doing it twice in the one day to get two takes of it so there's an earlier session and a later session on the 17th which is a Sunday so there's a 5pm, 7pm please come to one, come to both Uh, if you cannot afford to buy a ticket um, let me know and we'll see what we can arrange Uh, other than that, uh, my Audible documentary is coming out this week my second Audible documentary which is on Habit Change with Ashram Pura also my trilogy is still available that is, um, I, I mentioned it in the in the conversation with Neil, but it is the piece of work that I am currently very proud of and I feel like it's a, an interesting thing that's free, that's up on all of your podcast things um, as the Alice Fraser trilogy. Also, The Resistance is on Amazon Prime as a video. That's the, the middle of the three in the trilogy. And uh, other than that... Follow me on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. Uh, write me an email, alicerfraser at gmail.com. And uh, I will stop babbling and let you get on with listening to this podcast. This is Neil Gaiman having tea with Alice. I'll see you next week. So we'll start by saying who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, well, I'm... Uh- Tea has yet to be delivered. It's it's on its way up from downstairs because um, we're doing this in a hotel room. Uh, actually, not in a hotel room, in a in a little sort of hotel library, a cubby. A nook. It's very it, English. It is about as nooky as you can get this space. Um, and they are bringing us tea, and they're bringing you normal, sensible English builder's tea, and they're bringing me mint tea um, because I've already just had lunch and consumed pretty much an entire pot of jasmine tea and thought I will do something slightly non-caffeinated for once. Yeah. So, And they do really nice mint tea here where they just take an enormous quantity of mint, stick it in a teapot and pour hot water over it, which is by far the nicest way. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I will drink so much tea in a day that I realise my hands are shaking, which is too much tea. Exactly. And you would think such a thing is impossible, and yet... I, once, uh, there's a place in Double Bay called Taka Tea where I go regularly, and they do a sort of a gyokuro that's so um, unprocessed you can 
uh, eat the leaves mm -hmm. afterwards. And I did that once and went home and I was meeting somebody, a guy from my running squad, and we were going to have a music session. And every time I heard the gate clink, I, my heart rate rocketed up uh, to the point where I thought, am I in love with this guy? <laughs> and I realised, no, it was just caffeine. I was not at all in love with him. Caffeine and love are two things that, you know, you don't think of as being immediately confusable. And yeah, I suppose they are. They are. I think much more than alcohol and love. So anybody, um, <laughs> anybody who was listening really carefully to that last bit will have heard doors open and doors close. And during that time, the tea arrived. And it's got a succulent on it, which I'm very impressed by. Yes, don't eat the succulent. Don't, oh, but they look so delicious. Some, I remember as a kid not understanding what grown-ups saw in succulents, but uh, they look edible, I think, is what's good about them. They uh, really do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to array out the... Yeah, I love a, bit of, love a bit of business in my podcast, a bit of tea business. This is proper tea business is now <laughs> happening. So as, as a Brit, do you feel some sort of national affiliation with tea? Or... I would love to, um, except, of course, it doesn't grow here. And we've, <laughs> as far as I can tell, completely deformed and damaged the entire shape of the economy of the world, not to mention national borders over the last three, 400 years in order to obtain RT. Um, so mostly I, I feel you know, pride mixed with guilt. You're, you're very civilised there. I was just going to um, pour the tea without a strainer and strain it through my teeth like a whale. Well, actually, I didn't, didn't do anything there, but they've given us a tea strainer. Yes. More. No, I'm happy with that. Um, and given that we have a tea strainer, I thought we can, we can use Make it. Make use of it. Yes. Well, we've got all the bits here. Uh, it's magic. So what have you been wrestling with recently? That's uh, what been, this podcast is. So my, I guess, mostly my wrestling um, is the fact that I'm groundhog daying. Mm -hmm. um, for an author, it's not the worst thing in the world to groundhog day, but normally when you groundhog day, you're doing a novel. Mm. And you just write your novel by having the same day over and over again and when you look back you don't really remember what happened on any particular day because you just you know you'd get up and you'd exercise and you'd answer your email and then you'd go off to the little coffee shop that you were writing in and you'd sit in the courtyard and you'd write from 12 o'clock until six o'clock and you'd go home and you'd have dinner and you'd phone home or whatever and you'd do that over and over again. You so know, every, that was almost every part of the day is fixed and then there's one small incremental forward progress part. Exactly. Mm. Um, you know, and if, if it's me and I'm doing a novel, I try and jog. And I actually try and jog because I get to the first 10 minutes of running, the affairs of the day are going through my head. And then at the end of that 10 minutes of running, I'm kind of done and get a little bit exhausted. And now I'm just running. And somewhere in there, the story that I'm working on will start bubbling and percolating. And all of a sudden, I'll know something else about it. And that for me is it's like the really useful. But it's, oh, okay, this is going to happen. Good. That's a good thing to know. But I have to get my head free of the stuff in the day. So that's, I mean, it's not a bad thing, but I'm not doing that. What I'm in right now is finishing Good Omens Groundhog Day, um, where for, you know, first of all, we were editing it. And then when it was edited, we were doing... Um, you know, going off and getting music and various other things. And now we really are right at the end of the process. And we're doing obscure stuff that you have to explain to people, like picture grading and sound mixing and graphics. All and of things. those things that nobody notices unless they're not good. Yeah, exactly. 
I saw a, there was a lovely, wonderful moment on Twitter last night where somebody basically said to me, I don't understand what's the hold up. You finished shooting this almost a year ago. Mm. And somebody who was watching it, who was in post-production, just basically posted this little thing saying, ah, this is because everybody in the world assumes that pictures grade themselves, graphics happen themselves, the sound mixes itself, and all of the footage magically came out of the camera in the right order and ready to be slotted together at the right length and all of this kind of stuff. And it doesn't. You have to, you know, once you've made it, then you make it. Um, shooting it is... Um, shooting it is part of what you're doing, but shooting it is the equivalent of having the builders in and they put down the foundation and they put up the walls and they put up the roof. And now your job is to turn that into somewhere that people can not only live, but love living. And right now, I, I suppose we're up to, you know, we're up to the wallpaper and the decor on the top floor. Mm -hmm. You know, the bottom two floors are already beautiful to live in. But now if you walked around the top floor, you'd see all the places where the beams are exposed and there's still a few patches of damp and this just this bit just isn't finished and those screw heads need to be put in and, and sanded off and stuff. And so at this point for you, it's Groundhog Day-ish. It is Groundhog Day. I, I turn up in dark rooms. I only started using the Groundhog Day analogy when I realized that I'd actually got to the point where I was simply eating the same things every day because we would send out a runner who would bring food back to whichever dark room we were sitting in watching pictures, me and Douglas, the director. And so it was just easier if the same food appeared wherever I was. <laughs> and I didn't have to stop and think about it. Yeah, I think that's a good thing and a bad thing in life. We're quite good at making things efficient so then we don't have to think about them. But then that can mean they just slip past us. Yes, everything everything goes sort of grey. Um, or in my case, turns into a day sitting in the dark, staring up at a screen while people make magic, um, occasionally saying things like, can it be a bit more red? <laughs> or, you know, it, it's it's... It's also so weird because, you know, when you start the process of writing a TV series like this, you're doing everything. You're God. You're completely, you're all the heavy lifting. You're everything. Mm. Nobody else gets to write any lines. Nobody else gets to decide what you're doing. You just make it all up and put it all down. And then you wind up with this strange other job where now you have to translate these scripts into reality. And that can involve casting, that can involve, um, I discovered much to my bafflement, that can involve battles over budgeting, that can involve dealing with producers who look at a scene, look at scene A and go, ah, that is simple and easy to shoot, good, we like that. And scene B looks complicated and possibly expensive, and they have to lose one, so they're going, ah, oh, we will lose scene A, and I'm going, no, no, actually, we're going to lose, uh, they'll, they're going, we're going to lose the complicated one, and I'm going, no, we're going to lose that lovely simple one that you all love, because the plot won't mind if that goes away, but if we take the one that you want to take away, then the plot will come down like, like a house of cards falling if you've moved an important card. But they can't see it because all they can see is cost inefficiency and what's simple to do and what's not. I, I remember having this obviously at a much more kind of rudimentary level when I was pitching The Resistance, which is set in, in the house that I grew up in, which was my grandmother's house in the 80s with all of these sort of various refugees and, and different people in that house. And I pitched it over here as a television show and they said, can we set it in London and can we set it in the modern day because it does, we, a period piece is expensive and people don't want to hear about a story that's set in Australia? Mm -hmm. 
and I just thought, I mean, they're all immigrants anyway, but it, this is when it happened. These are the, their stories are coming from the things that were happening in the world. What you just want me to tell a different story? Well, I, I was so. It it is it it is gloriously baffling sometimes. I mean, I've I've had those conversations and. You know, the ones where people say, we love your book, Neverwhere. So we thought we'd do it as a movie and set it in New York. And you're going, <laughs> no, you you won't, actually, because everything in it is, it's about London. Mm. And you have to embrace that and love that, not see that as a problem to be solved. And, uh, you know, there, is, there are scenes. can we call it some when? <laughs> exactly. There are scenes in Neverwhere that took just Douglas and I sticking to our guns to make them happen. And some of those are some of my favorite scenes of all. Um, there was one, uh, Aziraphale and Crowley, in the... 1940s in a church in the Blitz um, that everybody wanted to go except us and the reason they wanted it to go was incredibly simple it was a five page scene and if they pulled it out they'd save a day's shooting <laughs> and they felt like it could go and Douglas and I were just like no it, it's not going it's actually a huge amount is happening in this scene, and if it goes away, then all of the scene, all of the things that we do there can't happen. I mean, I just watched that, and it's glorious. There's so much character development that happens, so much relationship work. It's it's a lovely little scene. It is. It. I mean, it's it's like this sort of five minute long micro play. It it has reversals. It has beginnings. Mm -hmm. It has middles. It has ends. It has. Uh, Two of the League of Gentlemen and, uh, <laughs> and the wonderful Neve Walsh in it as well. You know, it, it's, but in order to get that to happen, we had to shoot it in, in South Africa and find a church in South Africa that could pass, in Cape Town that could pass for a London church. We had to do all sorts of things just because we were determined. Mm. And even then it got shot on in one day's shooting for a sequence that is really complex um, that you know you'd, you'd take a week to make if you were putting it in a feature film mm. um, and it was Michael Sheen's last day of shooting so when he finished that he had wrapped I mean that's that's great I mean it, it's it is a good thing to be able to put your foot down it is but I'm really looking forward to retiring from this my particular day? Yes, and retiring from being a showrunner. I'm doing this thing because Terry Pratchett. So for anybody who's listening to this thing and is completely at sea right now, um, my name's Neil Gaiman. I'm a writer. I'm a writer of books. I'm a writer of comic books. Occasionally I write television and I write movies. Um, and 30 years ago I wrote a book called Good Omens with Terry Pratchett. He wasn't famous then. I wasn't famous then. I'd had an idea for the beginning of something. I wrote 5,000 words. Um, Terry then wrote the next chunk, and then we wrote the rest of it together. And it was a very silly, lovely book about an angel and a demon who've been on Earth too long and like it here and don't think that the apocalypse is a good idea. It's a great book. Thank you. So normally in my life, I'm not a showrunner. That's not my job. I'm a writer. But before Terry died, he asked me if I would make this and, and make it for him to see before he went. And then he went, which left me kind of stuffed um, because it had become a, a last request. And I thought, well, probably nobody else is ever going to make a real last request of me. And not a friend and not somebody who I owe so much to. 
So I'll do it. And I did it. Um, and I'm really, really proud of what we made. Um, I just, you know, showed you a little bit of it. And it's magic, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I remember reading that book sitting in my backyard in a tree and just watching that on screen. I find often if I see a, a television adaptation of a book I've read, I'm always picking it apart. Maybe it's just that I haven't read it since I was younger, but that just looked like the book to me, which is, I imagine, what you intended. That was what we were going for. Um, and also going... It's an adaptation of the book. You could, you know, I don't think it's the adaptation of the book any more than I think going to a school play adaptation of the book is the book. Mm. And the next time you go to a play, it could be in the West End. And that isn't the adaptation of the book either. It's, it's, it's how different people see it. But I love what Michael Sheen and David Tennant brought to it. I love what Miranda Richardson and Michael McKean have brought to it. I love what Adria Arjona and Jack Whitehall have brought to it. I love what Derek Jacobi and Francis McDormand and, uh, you know, and, 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 and have brought to it. So many fantastic people. Um, but it's also, this is not what I do. Mm. And I would like now to go back to my day job, which is writing books and writing short stories and writing scripts. And I'd like to finish things that are, in many cases, about two years overdue, because that was the point where this came like a tidal wave and hit my life and tumbled me down the beach and uh, have left me sort of paddling desperately trying to keep my head above water and I couldn't have done it without an incredibly patient wife who is I have to say at this point just starting to run out of patience and I do not blame her and you know really and patient editors and people who are just going okay this is we are where we are this is what it is Neil is not going to hand in this novel until Good Omens is done Neil's not going to do this script until Good Omens is done I mean, when you are, you, you're a showrunner now for this period of time and you are, I assume, good at it. At least you have Apparently very... Apparently I am. Yeah. I didn't know that I would be. And I... And it took me a while to get good at it. Um, but I am good at it now. And has that changed how you think about what you do? I think it means that in the future, people who are showrunning stuff of mine will find me much more difficult to bullshit. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I've wound up having conversations with people on other shows, which are very interesting. They're like, oh, we can't do this because it would cost us $600,000 to do. And I'm like, well... You could do the $600,000 version, or you could do the $300,000 version, or you can do the $125,000 version, or you could do the $75,000 version, which is what it costs you to turn on the lights in the morning. <laughs> so let's talk about how you can do it rather than why you can't, or whatever. It's yeah. those kind of conversations which I wouldn't have been sure enough of myself to have otherwise. It is it's good to have done a project like this where you actually care about it hugely in this way that you're f you feel like you're doing it for someone else. I felt, and, and to do that as your kind of experience of show running, I felt like the first thing I really edited that was long form was my trilogy, mm -hmm. which I just felt such responsibility to get right. Um, and I, I, that I almost couldn't edit it. I had to transcribe the full three hour long show and edit it on paper because otherwise I was just listening to myself feeling things mm -hmm. and uh, sort of incapable of having any distance from it while at the same time in having incredibly strong opinions about how it should be put together and what sound effects there should be and so I think now, going forward, anything that I edit, I will care less about and be better at doing. 
that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think sometimes you have to learn. You have to learn how much to care and how much not to care, and you have to learn what you can spend your life caring about and what actually it's okay. You can let that go, and that also, and it's also okay that that changes through life. Mm. You know, I remember. You know, my first book. I was twenty three, twenty four, and I remember designing the cover <laughs> on a napkin in a pub and giving it to my editor, who was there, and because it was her first book, I didn't know any better. I just showed her how the cover should go and gave her the napkin, and because she didn't know any better, she went to the art department, and because they were kind of perfectly happy to be given a brief from an editor. My napkin went off into an artist and I was completely, I, I wasn't, you know, I was thrilled when here's my cover design down to the style of lettering and everything on the book. Um, and it didn't occur to me this was in any way out of the ordinary. Mm. I just assumed that was how it happened. Obviously, authors doodled cover designs on napkins in pubs and <laughs> gave them to editors who gave them, you know, and then the book came out and it had your cover design on. Um, these days, I probably wouldn't do that. It's been many years since I even attempted to say this is exactly what should be on the cover because I go, there are amazing, talented people out there. I want to see what they want to put on the cover. I'm not going to say to them, you know, use this lettering design, whatever. Probably the last one I did would have been, I think the original cover of Ocean at the End of the Lane, mm. where, with the the girl swimming underwater. Um, and that was, that I think was the last time I said, I want, this is what I want. And here are the kind of photographs. And uh, But normally I, ju I just let, publishers get on with it because I assume they can get on with it and my response is I like that I don't like it I think it's great can it be a bit more blue when was the last time you really changed your mind about something important in small terms I've been doing it an awful lot on a kind of daily basis um, because I have to. And it's been a fascinating process. Um, especially working with, with Douglas McKinnon, who directed uh, Good Omens, because both of us have incredibly robust points of view about what we're doing. And both of us are big people with egos making art. But we're also both making people with big egos making art to serve the project. Which means that from my point of view, and I think from Douglas's, we don't argue much, we don't disagree, we just make the thing from everybody else's point of view um they get to watch us you know sitting in front of a of a vfx shot or whatever just absolutely talking about what we're doing and disagreeing and douglas will say this and i will say absolutely not but that and what's really weird is that in the middle of that, one of us will go, well, hang on, what if we do this? Then we could do both of those things. And the other one's like, yeah, what a great idea. And then the thing carries on. Mm. And it is that sort of, you know, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis thing, which you feel like it shouldn't really work, um, but actually is, is how Good Omens gets made on literally a daily basis. You know, 
I'll want to do one thing, Douglas will want to do another. And one of us will go, hang on, but what if we do this? And then both of us suddenly have these sort of goofy grins on our face and both of us go, actually, that was really my idea. Um, <laughs> I feel like that is something that is missing a, a, a lot nowadays from the way that we think about thinking. That, that because a lot of arguing is done in bad faith now by people who really don't want to change their minds or are not open to having their minds changed and refuse to have any debate because they feel like ceding any ground must be a betrayal of their cause, they have such certainty, that you don't get that good faith progress. Well, I think part of that also is because, I mean, you know, I think Twitter is brilliant. Mm. And I also think that Twitter is responsible for an awful lot of the mess we're in right now. Mm. Um, I used to love watching debate on the web. Mm. Um, my friends Patrick and Teresa Nielsen Hayden had a website that still exists. I don't know if it particularly visited and particularly the same anymore. It's been a while since I've been there called Making Light. And posts would go up on Making Light and you would watch fantastic, vigorous, interested arguments going on underneath. And people who were smart people assuming good faith on with the people they were arguing with, you know, laying down evidence to change people's minds about things. And very often you'd watch minds being changed. Mm. And that was how, from my perspective anyway, most web conversations and web arguments went. Mm. And then all of a sudden you're on Twitter um, I remember watching one a few years ago. I made the mistake of posting something about the Clarion Science Fiction Workshop. The Clarion Science Fiction Workshop, which has been going now for about 50 years, um, you know, about 17 or 18 young, and, and young science fiction writers in the sense that in the first one I taught the youngest was I think 21 and the oldest was in their 50s. But they're all starting out in some way. Um, science fiction writers and slash fantasy writers um, getting a weekly, essentially it's like a boot camp. And each week you get a different teacher coming in and working with you and the process is one of everybody writes a story. Everybody critiques a story that week. You talk about stuff, things happen, and then the next week somebody else comes in and now Sounds you're... Sounds incredible. And it's great. It really is fantastic. And I said something like, you know, if you want to be a science fiction writer, you absolutely must, and I put it in capital letters or whatever, you have to, you know, try, you know apply to Clarion, go to Clarion. And I wake up the next morning... Uh, and the world had somehow decided that I have decided, I have announced that nobody who has not been to Clarion could possibly be a writer of science fiction <laughs> and fantasy, which under that terms would exclude, like, me. Um, and despite everything that I've ever said anywhere on the web about, you know, what you actually need to write, you need to start writing. Mm -hmm. you, there are no preconditions um, had decided that I had become some kind of exclusionary monster and, and and you'd even find people, and, and then I'm, I'm looking further into this, and I'm finding people even going, well, obviously he doesn't mean it, but yes. now we still need to shout at him to demonstrate that. And I'm just like, and I thought, well, actually, that day my, my son Ash had just figured out how to turn himself over onto his back <laughs> for the first time, and it was like amazing. So, yeah, the internet can go fuck itself. I'm, I'm good today. Um, but watching that thing where you're going, there's no argument is happening. Yeah, you know what I mean. Every, and, and not only did they know what I mean, but a few people before I went to bed had said, do you mean that yeah. nobody but? And I'm like, absolutely not. Obviously, obviously. obviously that was, you know, obviously that was a hyperbolic, I think I said something like that was obviously a hyperbolic statement. Um, 
you know, look at everything else I've written. But Claren is fantastic and you should go to it if you can. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's like and you must bed. have a bite of this sandwich. Absolutely. It really was on the lines of this is the finest sandwich you will ever have in London. Go and check it out. Yeah. And to which I do not mean everybody on the planet who cannot get to this one sandwich shop in London is... Has a never eaten a sandwich and no sandwich you've ever eaten is valid. Exactly. And it was just kind of... But there is this... Uh, and that one I'm pointing to just because it's obviously silly. Mm. Um, and they, they, aren't, they aren't always that obvious. Mm. You know, a lot of the time, you know, most, most arguments are between people who believe themselves so thoroughly to be right. Mm. Um, that no other point of view can even enter the thing. Yeah, I always try. I always try to try uh, in an argument to see what ground I can cede to them, mm -hmm. to see where they're right, to treat their argument as a as a Jenga tower rather than a house of cards where I can find one floor and the whole thing comes to pieces rather than, well, I don't agree with that, but does the rest of it still stand? And at the same time, I know that that's useless. If I'm the only person who's doing that, then I just get to sit on the sidelines smugly and judge everybody else's bad arguing. But how do you how do you change someone's mind who doesn't want to have their mind changed? I still don't know. Um, Other than comedy. You know, well, comedy helps, but as with all of these things, the biggest problem is that the people that you might want to reach with your comedy aren't in your audience. The people who are in your audience are mostly people who at least are open to having their minds changed. Yes. You know. Which is why I think it's important to do the kind of ro rooms that I don't always like doing. What kind of rooms would they be? Yeah. I, I don't always... I. I don't do as many club gigs as I used to. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, yeah, people who are just there for jokes. Because then you have to give them jokes enough that they will swallow whatever else you're offering. But even then, your audience is consisting of people who are actually willing to leave their house, interact with other human beings in a social manner and be amused by yes. jokes, even if they aren't planning to think, which moves them out of the groups of, for example, people who are sitting in their basements being angry about something. And if they do come out as a group, will only do it when there are a lot of them and they don't want to laugh. They just want to hit people or scare them. You're going, those Those people are not going to be there. It is that sort of that thing where um, the people who you most want to reach, you never can. Um, That's true. And also, you can, I think... Do, do it by proxy a little bit. You know, you might not reach them, but you might meet, reach the friend of the friend who says to the friend. And that's one of the nice things about, about books, about stories, about jokes, is that there's a line that might stick with someone and they pass it on. Yeah. And that can change, that can genuinely change the world. I remember very, uh, it uh, happened years and years and years ago, and I will always remember it, talking to a taxi driver who was saying that his opinion on equal marriage had been changed and told me the joke. Some guy on stage at a club who'd said, oh, you know, why do you care what's in there? But just some, something like that, some punchline that he'd remembered. And he thought, why do I? Why do I care? And I just thought, that is, that is amazing. The idea that, yeah, that one joke can undo, you know, quarter of a century of social conditioning yeah. as to what's right and wrong, because it actually makes you take it out and inspect it. Yeah. And go, oh, yeah, that's that's a bit odd. And and, and the, that is 
simultaneously why I believe people when they talk about language as being dangerous and also am a borderline free speech fundamentalist. I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's much harder now being a borderline free speech fundamentalist, which I have, I, you know, I've been one forever. And I was, I became a borderline free speech fundamentalist because I watched people trying to close down things that I liked. Mm. And, um, and I went, hang on, you, you can't do that. And also, but if you can't do that, then really you can't do it with anything because if you give them permission to do it with anything, you're giving them permission to do it with the stuff that you like. Yeah. And um, it was that sort of horrible having to inspect this and going, but the stuff that you are uncomfortable with or don't want, don't like, will always be the thin end of the wedge Yeah. for the stuff that you do like. Well, to think that there are people in the world who are as offended by me walking around doing what I do with my life as I am at their opinion. Like, just mm -hmm. to try and... Uh, as though people who burned witches were not as offended by witches. <laughs> that they weren't... It, there's no... It's attributing good faith to your enemy. Just going, yeah. they believe as much as I believe. So... And then, yes, of course, there is terrible speech and speech that is really harmful... And you have to negotiate that. And there are bad outcomes. And sometimes talking about things can make them happen. But I think over time and in some, it is better to have it than not. I would agree. But that's not a, it's not a great thing. It's like it doesn't fit on a placard. Over uh, well, time, in total, with exceptions. <laughs> you wind up... Yeah, I, I wound up once, I remember, writing a blog, um, which was, I think I call it something like, you know, why defend icky speech? Mm. And... It's a good way to put it. And it was just this long thing about, okay, well, it was this, and it was that. And it was me, here are my personal experiences with censorship. This is why, you know, when I did outrageous tales from the Old Testament and came very close to sending a Swedish publisher to prison because of a really awful um, rape and murder depicted in outrageous tales from the Old Testament which I wrote and was drawn in order to be a really awful rape and murder. There was meant to be nothing nice about this at all. Um, it wasn't meant to be glamorous or hot. It was meant to be awful. And as far as I can tell, the only reason why I didn't wind up sending my Swedish publisher to prison um, was because it was line for line taken from the Bible. <laughs> um and the point of Outrageous Tales in the Old Testament was a comic that was, you know, it was created by Knockabout Comics who were having their own continuous battles with censorship at the time, with customs. Um, they try and import custom uh, comics from America, underground comics in particular, and be unable to bring them in because customs would stop them and stuff. So they did Outrageous Tales going, you realize these, these are the stories that are in the Bible. Mm. which is the book that you put, you know, every kid gets handed it. It's in every hotel room by the by the bed, and this stuff is in there. Mm. And I had an enormous amount of pleasure going and putting some of these stories in. Um, and so for me, um, and, you know, outlining what happened with those, outlining various other things, and basically getting to the point of going, okay, I think... The way that you battle um, words is with your words. Yeah. Um, 
it has to be. You, you know, you you cannot battle words by taking away somebody's liberty or, or property yeah. or life. Yeah. Attractive though it would be. Well, if only because you can't take, you, you shouldn't take power to yourself that you wouldn't be happy with your opposition having. Mm. It's the idea of a good king. If you set up a good king, you have to be sure that his first in command and his second in command are good people and that the next king will be a good king and the one after him because the powers that one have pass on. Yeah. And then you have to be so sure that anyone who has this power will use it for good. And you can't be sure of that. Because people be are sure. people. Because people are people, exactly. And even you are people. And, you know, watching any, any law that you enact against your enemies can be used against you yeah if it is if it is a valid law and um it it's not something that people understand necessarily or are comfortable with yeah i think i think there is a a, a fallacy in a lot of the well-meaning arguments that happen now and the fallacy is that we know instinctively right from wrong I don't think we do I don't think we know instinctively right from wrong I think we put it together I think I think there are definitely things that we know are righter than wronger yeah um, and I think that people as a whole get a lot of stuff right you know it, it's the um, I think we do get a lot of stuff right but I don't think I don't think we very I don't think we often realize we're wrong without somebody else telling us. I yes, and I think you know the culture we grow up in is important. Yeah. Knowing um you know knowing things like an idea of of ownership, an idea of uh care, an idea that people's lives matter. Um, and but some of that also, I, I you know, it's interesting because we we're talking about what we do. Yeah. Um, I am always fascinated by how much both comedy and fiction writing really work when it comes down to it in moments of empathy. Yes. The moment where you suddenly go, I thought that was just me. Hmm. And, oh my God, that thing that person said on the stage, I'm laughing, but the reason I'm laughing is because I'm, up until this point, here was this uninspected thing, and I thought I was alone on the planet, and there were, you know, five billion normal people, and then there was me. And this person just said this thing, and and that's me too. Oh my god! And that I think is is huge. And the same thing with fiction, in that you are learning that other people are also me. Yes. That you are not the only I on the face of this planet. Yeah. Um, you know the 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 point where kindness happens the point where compassion happens um the point where help happens the point where you learn how to put yourself into somebody else's shoes happen a lot of it i think through fiction a lot of it i like to think through comedy yes and with comedy it's not always they're saying what i'm thinking sometimes they're saying something you haven't thought about but the way they say it gives you a, a glimpse into another world. Yeah. And and that's, I think, what fiction is so good at doing, just giving you a, a glimpse into another, through another set of eyeballs. Exactly. Well, I will, I will let you go because you have things to do. I do. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Oh, do you know her, or do you not? This dolphin mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dolphins at every frame. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day.